0: Father, we come before You once again as we're gathered together. And we ask now that You would specifically quiet our minds and our hearts as we look into Your Word. Lord, it's very easy to be distracted, to think about other things, whatever they may be. uh, Struggles within our own lives, hardships, things that are going on that we're discouraged by all of these things can be clouding our minds, they can be clouding our hearts, and it can be so hard to, to focus on what You are saying here in Your Word. And Lord, I confess that even as the preacher, it is, it's hard for me to, to solely focus on what I'm saying and not be clouded by distractions as, as I'm preaching. So I pray that You would be with the ones who are sitting before me and that You would be with me as I stand to proclaim Your Word. May You fill us with the power of Your Holy Spirit, And help us to listen. And as we listen, Lord, may You continually be transforming us. May we be transformed by the renewal of our minds, which comes from Your Word and the power of the Gospel. By seeing it, understanding it, and having it come out and flood our lives in every way. Be with us now as we look into Jonah chapter 3 and we continue to go through this book. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The prophet who preaches and the God who shows mercy. So we're going to see this morning here in chapter 3. The prophet who preaches and the God who shows mercy. And if you remember last week, we were looking at chapter 2 and what we saw there in chapter 2 was the prophet who prays and the God who shows mercy. So Jonah, in his distress, he cried out to the Lord in prayer And God did what? He showed mercy, didn't He? He showed mercy on Jonah. Well now here in chapter 3, Jonah is going to hear once again from the Word of God. It's going to come to him, calling him to go to Nineveh. He's going to go this time. And God is once again going to show mercy. But it's not going to be on Jonah. It's going to be on Nineveh. And so we're going to see what happens as this part of the story unfolds. So please look, at, look with me at chapter 3 as we read the chapter together, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, Three days' journey in breadth, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, "Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown." And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. Now as we prepare to walk through this whole chapter, all ten verses, I'm going to be handling the chapter in four parts. So in verses 1 to 3, we are going to see primarily that Jonah is recommissioned by God. Then in verses 4 and 5, we're going to see that Jonah preaches to the Ninevites and they believe. In verses 6 to 9, we're going to see that the Ninevite king believes. And then in verse 10, we'll see that God relents from His judgment. So those are the four parts that we're going to handle the chapter in. Now let's look together at verses 1 to 3, where Jonah is recommissioned by God. So we see in verses 1 and 2 this. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. The author says, The second time, say, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. That's verses 1 and 2. So as we start here in chapter 3, we are pretty much where we left off in chapter 1, right? In chapter 1, what did we see? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has risen before me. And what do we see here? The same thing. So We're we're back to where we started. And not only does these two verses look familiar, but you may have already noticed in your own personal reading that chapters 3 and 4, they strangely look familiar to chapters 1 and 2, don't they? You may have noticed that. The reason why they look strangely familiar is because chapters three and four actually, well, they, they mostly parallel chapters one and two. So chapters three and four mostly parallel chapters one and two. For example, we have here that the word of the Lord comes again to Jonah. And then he goes to Nineveh. He finds himself in the midst of these pagans like He did when He was on the ship. God has mercy on the pagans, like He did on the ship. He's going to have mercy on the people of Nineveh. After that happens, Jonah's going to pray, like he did in chapter 2. So you can see that these events are right beside each other. And the author, he does this on purpose, which we believe is Jonah. So as Jonah is writing this work, he has done this purposefully. He has purposefully made these events parallel one another. And the reason why he has done this is so that you and I, as we're reading the book, can compare and contrast the events. We can look back, see what happened there, and then we can look again as we come to chapters 3 and 4 and we can see how it continues to unfold, what looks the same, what looks different, and really just see how Jonah continues to act very pathetic, honestly. So they parallel one another, and He's done that on purpose, so you need to keep that in mind, especially as we get closer and closer to the climax of the book, which is the very end, when God asks His question to Jonah. Because when His question comes to him, all of these things are going to be in the background. As God asks His question to Jonah, Do you do you do well to be angry? Think about it, Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? if you think about everything that's just happened. So keep that in mind. Also notice here in verses 1 and 2 that nothing has changed. God tells Jonah the same thing that he did in chapter 1. The same thing. Jonah went on his detour. He ran from God because he didn't like the mission that God had given him. Go to Nineveh, preach against it. You know, possibly because God may have mercy on them. He didn't like that idea, so he ran. Went on this long detour trying to get to Tarshish. It didn't work out. He got swallowed by the fish. God brought him back to land. And now he recommissions him and he tells him the exact same thing. Nothing has changed. So it probably would have been better if Jonah just listened the first time, right? You know we kind of tend to think similar in all situations. If we're honest, you know God may call us to do something, or we especially feel convicted in some area to go and to do something that God would have us to do, but we don't want to do it, and so we may ignore it. We may shy away from it, thinking, you know, maybe if I just avoid it, if I don't say anything, or if I just don't really pay attention to it, God will forget. Or it'll change. You'll say, you know what? I understand. I'll get somebody else. But God doesn't do that here. He doesn't cater to Jonah and what Jonah wants to do. No, God is determined to have him go to Nineveh so that he can show mercy on these people for a specific reason, as we're going to see at the end of the sermon. But all of the while, even though Jonah disobeyed and he ran from God and he tried to escape from the plan of God, the presence of God, the presence of this mission, things like that, God still used it for good, didn't He? He still used Jonah's disobedience. Because what happened whenever he ran? He got on the ship with these pagans, these these sailors... And ultimately, it resulted in their salvation. God used Jonah's disobedience for good. They were saved through it. And this testifies to the great wisdom of God. That even though His people sometimes disobey, sometimes they they run from Him, sometimes they seek to go the other way, It doesn't surprise God, and he's able to use it. He's able to use it for good. And you think about the the example of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. That's probably the primary example that we have of God using something evil for good. Because you remember Joseph's brothers, they tried to, they started out trying to kill him, then they threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery, and God used that situation for good. He sent a famine throughout the land. Well, Joseph ended up becoming the, you know, the second most important person in Egypt because his brothers threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. God used that for good and it's the same way for us. Now that does not give you a license to sin and to disobey God. If God calls you to do something, we cannot say, this does not give us a license to say, you know what, God can still use my disobedience for good, so I'm going to go ahead and disobey, and God, you do your thing. That's not a license for this. Disobedience is still sinful, and it is direct disobedience to God and to His holiness, who He is and the good that He has in store for you and the people maybe that He's calling you to reach out to or whatever it may be. This is still sinful. Even though God has used Jonah's detour for good, it was still disobedience and He should, have, he should not have done it in the first place. But the point here is that God in His wisdom, in His power, in His mercy, in His grace is still able to use it. And He still uses it even today today for His people. Now, in verse 3, in the the first part of verse 3, so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time. Nothing has changed. Jonah hears the word of the Lord, and this time he goes. We see there in verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He obeys this time. And then in the second part of verse 3, the author, he comments on the size of the city. Similar to how he did in chapter 1, except for he gives a lot more detail here. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. That's what he says about the size of the city. Now, there's some debate about what exactly this means whenever he says that it was an exceedingly great city and then gives the detail of three days, journey, in breadth. What does he mean by saying that? Because, now the debate originates from, let me make sure I get these dates right. So in 1845 to 1854, there were some major excavations done in this area where the city of Nineveh was located by some guy, I can't remember what his name was. But him and these team. This team of 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 people, they went out there, they did some excavations around the city, and what they found was that the city was about four miles long and about two miles wide. Now, that's still a big city, especially when you're thinking about in ancient terms in this day. That's still a big city. But it's not big enough to where it takes you three days to journey across it, like the author says here. So what does he mean by that? Well, some people say, well, he's referring to the fact that it took Jonah three days to walk throughout the city, you know, as he preached. he You know, as he went throughout the whole city, it took him three days. But that's not necessarily what the author says here. He says, three days journey in breadth. And then in verse 4, it says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. So it doesn't really seem like he's talking about he's going throughout the city and it takes him three days to do it. It leans more heavily on the fact that he's walking through the city and it takes him three days really to get to the, to the heart of the city. And so others comment and they say, well, this is referring to not only what would have been known as the inner city, which is that large portion there which they excavated, which was four miles long, about two miles wide. But it also refers to some of the outlying parts of the city, maybe some outlying villages, something like that. And we could probably think in terms of our day like city limits. You know, when you come into a city, you come to the city limit. Well, you may come to the city limit, but you really haven't entered into the inner city yet. And so this may be what's happening here. Nineveh was a great city, but there was probably some outlying villages, you know, the city limits of the actual area. And so to travel through all of that, it takes about three days' journey to make it to the actual part of the city. And I think that's what's being referred to here as the author comments on the the size of the city. But you know, either way, Whatever it is, the point is that it's a great city. It's a large city. It was very prominent. It was very fruitful. They were very advanced in their their technology. And there were a lot of people there who, as we're going to see at the end of the book, are lost. This is a great city, uh, evil people, and they are in need of God's mercy and grace. That's the whole point. Now, verses 4 and 5. Jonah preaches and the Ninevites believes. So Jonah, he makes it into the city. And when he does, you know he goes about a, a day's journey, the author says. So he's possibly still kind of on some of the outlying parts of the city. may have not really made it into the, the actual major part, the, the inner city part. He goes about a day's journey and he begins to preach the message that the Lord has given to him. And this is the message. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the message. He makes it about a day into the city and he begins to proclaim to the people that are there, yet forty days... Picture this in your mind now. Jonah is in this area. I don't know how populated the outer part of the city would have been, but he's walking through here. Ninevites are surrounding him, and he begins to say, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What in the world would you have thought if you were one of the Ninevites? You know, you're going about your business whatever that may have been, your, your occupation or whatever. Here comes this foreign prophet into the city. They can tell he's a foreign guy. They may have known that he was a Hebrew, I'm not sure, but they could tell that he was probably a foreign person, foreign prophet. And he comes in and all he says is, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You would not expect anybody to believe this message, Right? I mean, you remember what we talked, what we said about these people, the Assyrians. How wicked they were, how evil they were, how violent they were, you know, the type of people that they were. This guy walks into their city and he tells them, hey, in 40 days, your city's going to be destroyed you would not expect them to believe it. Instead, you would expect them to lay hands on Jonah and say, what the heck are you talking about? Who do you think you are? Do you not know who we are? Lay hands on him and probably kill him in some gruesome and violent way according to some of their practices that we looked at in the the second message, I think. But that's not what happens. Against all odds and against all expectations, Jonah goes in, he preaches this message, Probably with gladness, you know, he's probably glad that he's proclaiming wrath upon these people. You know, he may, I don't think he may have been smiling, but within his heart, he was probably like, yeah, in 40 days, you guys are going down. (laughs) And I wonder if, you know, somebody may have come up to him and asked, you know, how can we be saved? You know, some people think that this wasn't the whole message. Some say, This is just a summary of the message. You know, surely Jonah went into the city, he proclaimed this message, and people came to him, and surely they asked him questions. Okay, if, if we're going to, you know, if God is going to destroy our city in in 40 days, what can we do? How can we be saved? What, what do we need to do? Please tell us. And that may have been true. Jonah may have said more. There may have been conversation going back and forth, but that's all speculation. We don't know what would have been said in that that way. All we're told is that this is the message that was given to him by God and this is what he proclaimed. And against all odds and against all expectations, the Ninevites do what? They believe it. And we see that in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. These people believed Jonah's message. And not only do they just believe what he says is true, but they call for a fast, which just means that they don't eat anything, I guess for the 40 days, or I'm not sure how long. But they call for a fast. They put on sackcloth. And the author says, from the greatest of them to the least of them. So from the greatest of them in the city to the least of them. So from the powerful to the poor, these people call for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, which was they were just signs of mourning. These people have gone into a city-wide state of mourning at the preaching of this message. And Jonah's message continues to spread. It doesn't just stay in the area that he's in. I mean, the author, he gives us a hint whenever he says that it spreads from the greatest of them to the least of them, but it goes even further than that. It spreads until it reaches the king of Nineveh. Now this guy, the king... Of Nineveh, he probably wasn't the king of the whole nation, like of Assyria. He was probably most likely just kind of like a governor. I mean, they, they would have still called him king, as he's called king here. But he was just the ruler of this, this province, this part of Assyria, because in this day, Nineveh actually wasn't the capital of Assyria. And I think I may have made the mistake in one of the first messages by saying that it was. So it wasn't actually the, the capital of Assyria at this time. Now it soon would become the capital where the king of Assyria would reside, where his palace would be. But currently it's not. He's just a, a governor, he's just a ruler of this particular area. But even, even though he's not the king of the whole nation, this is still amazing that this message spreads throughout this city, and it comes to the palace, it comes to where this guy is, and this is what we see in verses 6-9. to The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, his royal garments, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He too goes into a state of mourning, like the people of the city already are. So he hears the message. He believes it. He also repents of his evil way. He goes into the state of, this state of mourning. And then he takes it a step further and he issues a decree to the whole city that they should do likewise. Now they're already doing this. He doesn't have to tell them to do it. This is just making it official. Like, hey, if you don't do this, we're going to punish you. Like, that's serious. And so this is what he says as he issues this decree. We read, And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. In His decree, He says, Let neither man nor beast taste anything. Let them not feed, let them not drink water, Let them be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. And then let them turn from their evil way and from the the violence that is in their hands. Now again, remember who these people are. Remember how we described them. There was no small amount of evil that they were called in this moment to turn from. These are some of the most evil people throughout history. And the ruler of one of the most prominent cities in this nation has just issued a decree telling them, hey, you are ordered by the king of this city and his nobles, the rulers of this city, turn from your evil way and go into a state of mourning. Because who knows? God may turn from his fierce anger. He may relent. He may show mercy on us. Who knows? He expresses some hope there. This man in this city, they they are taking Jonah's message incredibly serious. They are taking it very serious. This is not a joke to them. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Let's step back. And let's just think about what's just happened. Because this this truly is amazing. You know, we, we can't... In our day, in our age, I don't think we can really fully comprehend just how amazing and just how unexpected this event really is. So let's just take a step back and do our best to try. So Jonah has gone to Nineveh a prophet who does not want to go there in the first place. He has gone into the city and he has begun to preach one of the shortest sermons in the history of preachers, I imagine. (laughs) Probably the shortest message ever preached. And what we would expect to happen does not happen. We would expect them to lay hands on him, cast him out of the city at least, and at most kill him. But they don't do that. They believe. They believe His message, this short message. They believe it. They repent. They go into a state of mourning. And pretty much, I mean, you could say like a whole citywide revival just sweeps over this place. Jonah preaches. These people hear it. And it just sweeps over this entire city until it reaches the king, the royal palace. And then he issues a decree... That makes it official. We would not expect this to happen. And if you are one of the original readers, if we were one of the original readers of this book, our mouths would probably be hitting the floor at this point. So, how did these people become so convicted? You know, how did they believe? How did they actually? believe that Jonah's message was true? How did they treat it so seriously? And how did they actually repent and turn from their evil way? I mean, did Jonah do something special? No. I mean, we've already said he doesn't want to be there in the first place. You know, he's a little bit more resolved to go this time. I mean, God's Word came to him and he's obeyed this time. But yet, as chapter 4 is going to reveal, he still doesn't want to be there. He's still not happy about God possibly at this point showing mercy to them. So Jonah hasn't done anything special. Was the message that he preaches, that he preached, very eloquent? You know, was it an eloquent message? Was it just one of those speeches or messages that falls on the people and you think to yourself, wow, that was powerful? No. In Hebrew, his message is five words long. I mean, I think it's eight words in English, but it's even shorter in the original language that it was preached. Or, well, he was probably saying it in whatever their language was, so I don't know how long it was in their language, but either way, it's a short message. There's nothing impressive about it. So, none of that can explain it. Now, there are some historians that say... You know, at this time, around Jonah's day, about the time that he would have went into Nineveh and preached to them, there were some strange things going on in this region. Like Assyria and Nineveh were being attacked by these foreign armies and they were being oppressed. And there were also kind of like some strange, what they would have called omens going on at the time. Like strange natural signs, possibly like a an eclipse that wasn't supposed to happen according to their calendars, or you know, stuff like that. Superstition stuff. That they would have looked out and seen and say, hey, that's not right, something's going on. You know, all of this stuff is happening for a reason. And then all of a sudden this foreign prophet comes in and he says, hey, 40 days, you guys are going down. And so that may have softened them, that may have desensitized, or not desensitized, but it may have made them sensitive, to His message. And that may have all been true. Those things may have happened. God uses that stuff, doesn't He? I mean, this is... You know, God, whenever He brings His message uh, upon our hearts or upon the the hearts of, of people, doesn't He use circumstances as well? I mean, you think about in our own lives, whenever the Gospel has come across us, whenever we've believed, you know, some of us may have been put into... A hard circumstance, a hard situation, hard things going on. A lot of people cry out to the Lord during natural disasters or, you know, all of that, all of that kind of stuff. God uses that every day. He uses things like that to soften the hearts of people so that whenever His message comes across, it cuts them to the heart. And that could have possibly happened here. They could have seen all of that strange stuff, and then here comes Jonah strolling in, preaches a message, and it strikes them to the heart. But even if that's true, we still should not miss the fact that this is solely because of the power of God to save and to show mercy. Even though all of those things may have happened, all of those things could have possibly been going on. This could not happen. In fact, no one can be saved unless it is because the power of God, his mercy, his grace to save. And that's what's happening here. And I think that's the point of the small or the short message. I think that's the whole point of Jonah's message how short it is, how unimpressive it is. God is showing in this moment, hey, I have set my sights on Nineveh. Yes, I know that they're evil. Yes, it has come before me. But I have decided that I'm going to show mercy, that I'm going to show grace upon these people, and I can do it even if I choose a prophet who doesn't want to go there in the first place and if he preaches a five-word sermon. If I want to save, I will save even if it's the most horrific and most violent nation that history you know, may have ever known. If I'm going to save, I will surely do it. Or if I have decided to save, I will surely do it. Like Jonah said in his prayer last week, remember at the end of the prayer, God's showing that's true. What did Jonah say at the end of chapter 2 and verse 9? At the very end of verse 9, he says what? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's His. Salvation is His. He's proving that right now. Salvation belongs to God. And whoever He casts His eyes on, whoever He decides to save, it's going to happen. Against all odds... And against all expectations, it will happen. And I also want us to notice that this is what true true revival looks like. This is what true revival looks like. Now, there's some question about how genuine the salvation of these Ninevites really is. I mean, we see that they believe And we see that they repent and they turn from their evil way. But that's all that we're told. You know, besides the fact that they go into a state of mourning, which was normal for people in that day. But we're not told that they exceedingly fear the Lord like the pagan sailors did in chapter 1. We're not told that. We're not giving any more hints that they forsook their idols and they began worshiping God and they became believers. We're just told that they believe God and they repent and turn from their evil way, which is still significant. Even if it only lasted for a little little while and they went back to their evil ways. This is still significant, what God is doing here. But whether they are truly saved in this moment or whether they are not truly saved and only last temporarily, this is what true revival looks like. In any country... In any nation, in any land, you know we have the tradition, mainly in southern, in the Bible Belt area, in southern parts of the United States, and this was started, I think, probably a couple hundred, few hundred years ago. Uh, the The practice of revivalism, you know, we we erect a big white tent, we invite a an especially charismatic preacher who's very loud. He can appeal to the senses of people better than other preachers may be able to. He screams at you. He he says things that may convict you. I remember one time uh, at a church that I went to back whenever I was a teenager. We went to this church and they were having this season of revival. And this preacher came in and he was, of course, he was a very charismatic preacher and One of the things that he harped on whenever he was in the pulpit was the disobedience of children, which is true. It's true. But that's just, that's what revival looks like to us, right? You know, we, we desire revival to happen, and that's not a bad thing. But it's not going to happen by inviting a charismatic preacher or us all of a sudden, you know, becoming charismatic and appealing to people's senses, preaching on certain sensitive topics, making people feel convicted, making people feel bad, making them walk down an aisle and say a certain prayer. That's not revival. I mean, God definitely uses it. He can use it. There are many people that have been saved throughout that. He uses it. But true revival happens when God's Word is faithfully preached, and then He takes it and He presses it upon the hearts of that community, of that country, of that nation, of that culture, or whatever. Not because of something that we do. Not because of something that's impressive about us or impressive about the preacher. It's because of God and who He is and His power to save. So when we pray for revival, let us pray for revival in that way. Let us have what we see here in chapter 3 in mind. God, may You use us, though we are ordinary, though we are not impressive, may You use us to communicate the power of Your Word. May You use it to save. That's what revival looks like. Now what does God do? What does God do whenever He sees their their belief? Whenever He sees their sorrow? Whenever He sees their repentance? What does He do? We see it in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them and He did not do it. I want you to notice there that the author says that God did not do it twice. You know, just in case we missed it, he says it twice. God relented of the disaster He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. He relented from the disaster that He said that He would bring. And oh, yeah, by the way, He did not do it. It's just to emphasize the fact that God really did genuinely relent from His wrath and His judgment that He said He would bring if these people continued in their evil way. He sees it. He sees their their belief, their repentance, and He shows mercy on them. Now at this point, again, think about the original reader's you know, the, the Jews in, in Jonah's day. At this point, they were probably wondering, you know, what the heck is God doing? God, what are you doing? What are you thinking? By showing these people mercy. I mean, what is the point? Why, why have you done this? I mean, they've probably been puzzled throughout the whole book. I mean, we said that earlier on in the in the book as we were going through it. And they were probably puzzled at the very beginning but now they're they just don't know what the heck's going on i imagine whenever they read this book for the first time god what are you doing what's your purpose here what's your plan i don't i don't get it you have just like jonah you have just went over everything that i understand you know all of my theological understanding Everything that I, I thought that I knew, you just went over all of it. What, what's your purpose here? What are you doing? Most of them would have probably responded in the same way that Jonah's going to respond in chapter 4. Not happy. Not happy about what God has just done. So what is God doing? What is God doing at this moment by showing mercy on the Ninevites? On this, on this great city, this great evil city. City. Well, I think there are a few things that God is showing us in this moment as He has mercy on Nineveh. First, I think as we've been seeing, He's in the process of teaching Jonah a lesson. You know, throughout the book, He's been teaching Jonah a lesson. And as well as the nation of Israel. He's teaching a lesson about what it really means to know And to experience God's mercy and grace. He's teaching them what that really looks like, what it really means to to know God and to know His mercy, to experience it. Because when you know God and you've truly experienced His mercy, His grace, His steadfast love, you want to share it, don't you? We were talking about that in Sunday school this morning. You know, it was one of the primary parts of the lesson that we were looking at. The example of David and the mercy that he had been shown by God, and then he extended it to one of Jonathan's sons. When you truly know God and you've experienced his mercy, you've experienced his grace, it can't just stay with you, it overflows. I mean, Because that's who God is. God's mercy doesn't stay to Himself. It overflows. I mean, that's why He created in the first place. He wanted to share who He is. And so how can a people who claim to know God and to have experienced God and His mercy receive that mercy and it just stop there and not go anywhere else? It can't. And that's what God's trying to teach them. That's what He's trying to teach Jonah. That's what He's trying to teach the Israelites. And that's what He's still trying to teach us. To know God and to experience His mercy is to have it overflow. Because that's just what happens. Because that's who God is. And when you've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, when He's transformed your life, when He's adopted you into His family, when He's made you a new person like Himself in the process. These things will just happen. I mean, little by little, yes, but they will happen. So God is He's teaching this lesson. He's in the process of teaching Jonah, the people of Israel, and us this lesson. Secondly, I think He's showing His sovereignty over all things. And that this is true, His sovereignty, about salvation. His salvation as well. So He's showing His sovereignty, and He's showing that His sovereignty also extends into His mercy and into His grace. God is sovereign over all things. He can do whatever He wants. It's all within the palm of His hand. You know, He can mold it, shape it, fashion it, do whatever He wants. And it's the same with His salvation. Same with His mercy like we talked about a moment ago. Salvation is His. He's sovereign over it. Nobody is saved. Nobody receives salvation. Nobody comes to know it. Nobody is transformed by it unless God causes it. And He's showing it here as well. Salvation truly belongs to Him. And He can save whoever He wants. Even Nineveh. Thirdly, I think he's giving us a glimpse here in chapter 3 of what's going to happen when he sends his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to purchase salvation for all peoples through the Gospel. I mean, you think this is awesome? Think about what God has done in His Son. You think this makes you mad? Think about what God does at the cross. You know, I wonder what Jonah would have thought if God told him his plan when Jesus was going to come on the scene. Because God just didn't save one certain people group through the cross. He saved, or he provided salvation for all peoples, for all tribes, for all tongues, for all nations. Christ came on the scene, he died, he rose from the grave, he Established his apostles, he put his word in them, and he said, do what? He said, go everywhere. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Now, go everywhere and preach the gospel. In other words, go everywhere so that all people can be saved. All people. All colors. All nations. All languages. It doesn't matter how evil they are, what they've done. God is able to save them. I mean, you think that this is awesome, or like Jonah, you think this is strange, and you think this makes you mad, or if this makes you mad, you do not like the cross, or you will not like the cross. Because there at the cross, God shows His greatest Display of salvation for all peoples. This, what we see here with Nineveh, this is just a taste, a small taste, or a drop in the bucket of salvation. What Christ has accomplished through his life, his death, and his resurrection is so much more, infinitely greater, what he has done there. And I think this is why Jesus says what he says. To the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter twelve. In Matthew chapter twelve, we we brought up this passage a few weeks ago, so it should be familiar to you. Uh, I'm going to read it. Matthew chapter twelve, uh, verses thirty-eight to forty-one. Now, again, Jesus in this moment, he's talking to the the Pharisees and the scribes, and they, they come to him and they ask him to show him a sign, to show them a sign. You know, validation. What they've already received is not good enough. So they, they want more. But Jesus says this to them. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they, repeated, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is telling these guys, can you not see what I'm showing you right now? I mean, think about it. The Son of God Himself was standing before these people proclaiming God's message of salvation the one that they had been waiting for and overall they rejected it I mean yes some received it but overall they rejected it and so Jesus is saying to them you're rejecting me you know who I am the Son of God you're rejecting my message you know on the day of judgment the men of Nineveh the men of Nineveh which would probably have struck a a nerve to them. The men of Nineveh, you remember? Hey, those great evil people that Israel didn't like at the time? They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Hey, you remember that short sermon that he preached? They repented at it. And you are forsaking what I'm saying to you, which is so much greater than what Jonah could have ever preached. So much greater than what Jonah could have ever imagined. And this rebuke is still true for us today here in the church. I would, say we haven't, we, I would say we have even more than what these people here in Matthew chapter 12 had. We have the whole Bible. Yes, Jesus was physically standing before them, but we have the full revelation of God's Word. We have so much more. And I think the latest Statistic that I saw, the average in every home is four Bibles. So the average home in our day has four Bibles in it. That's the average. I know that's not true for everybody, but the average is that every home has four Bibles in it. And what Jesus says here is still true for us. You know, if we reject His Word Yes, God's going to condemn you, but you know who's going to be right there beside Him? The men of Nineveh. And they're going to be pointing at you saying, how could you reject the Gospel? How could you reject that? God's fulfilled message in Christ. So let us examine our hearts here in this moment. What do our hearts look like? Are they hardened toward the gospel? Are they like the people in Jesus' day? You know, the gospel is not enough for me. Jesus, what you're saying is not enough. I need more. Or have they received the gospel? Have our hearts genuinely received it? And have they been transformed by it? Let us genuinely ask ourselves that question daily. Now, before we close, let's, let's look back at Jonah for a moment. So Jonah has finally preached to the Ninevites. They, they believed, repented of their evil ways, and, and God has showed mercy on them. But what about Jonah? You know, how is he going to respond to all of this? Well, he's not going to be happy. In fact, he's going to be so unhappy that he asked God to take his life. We're going to see Jonah sink once again into despair because of God and what He has done, the mercy that He has shown. God, however, He's going to continue to show great mercy and grace upon Jonah and He's going to do something that we haven't seen yet. God's going to question Jonah about His response to God's mercy. God's going to begin to show him what He desperately needs to see his own self-righteousness, and how he, in his sin, is just like Nineveh and every other evil person in the world that is in need of God's mercy and grace. Father, we come before You and we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this display of Your mercy and grace that we see here in chapter 3. Lord, what a great display of mercy and grace it was indeed. These wicked people believing Your Word and receiving it. But how much more have we seen in Christ? What we see here in chapter 3 is just a taste. It's just a glimpse. It's just a drop. Lord, may we not turn away from it. May we receive it and may we be transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.